Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. This past week across the national park system, we've seen a reopening of the USS Arizona Memorial pushed back indefinitely, as has been the permit application lottery for those hoping to stand atop Half Dome in Yosemite National Park. Big news, however, was final congressional passage of a massive public lands bill that establishes 1.3 million acres of official wilderness and protects Yellowstone National Park and North Cascades National Park from mining on their doorsteps. For those stories and more, head over to nationalparkstraveler.org. Turning to this week's podcast, we're discussing backpacking in the national park system with Michael Lanza, author of the Big Outside blog, and Florida Panthers with Elizabeth Fleming from Defenders of Wildlife. And we'll have an interesting piece on backpacking in Shenandoah National Park. If you're a backpacker, there are some hikes that are classics and immediately grab your attention. The Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, and the Continental Divide Trail are the crown jewels for long-distance hikers in America. But there are many other trails across the national park system worthy of your attention. The 1,300-mile-long Florida Trail, the North Country Trail, which roams 4,600 miles from North Dakota to New York, the Ice Age Trail, and the Wonderland Trail. To discuss backpacking in the national park system, we've reached out to Michael Lanza, who has put more miles on his boots than anyone I know. Michael keeps track of his adventures via his blog, The Big Outside. He's also the author of Before They're Gone, a family's year-long quest to explore America's most endangered parks. In it, he chronicles the travels he and his wife took their two young children on to see national parks most likely to be impacted by climate change. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Kurt. Pleasure to be on. Thank you. Great. I'm glad you could fit us in today. Let's just start off with what, what's your favorite long-distance hike in the national park system? You know, um... I get asked about my favorite trip often, and it's hard to say, but I certainly have several suggestions for you. Sometimes it's the most recent trip I've taken, you know? Sure. In your intro, you you mentioned some of the national scenic trails, like the Continental Divide Trail and Pacific Crest AT and others. I think, and, and what I like to do is to pick every year, couple, three, four, more if I can, sections of those trails or just, you know, long-ish type um, hikes that might, you know, that can you can do in a week, say, or certainly within a, a two or three week span. In fact, just last September, I hiked um, a 94-mile section, three friends and I, 94-mile section of the Continental Divide Trail through Glacier National Park, which I think you talk to CDT through hikers. We were there in September, so we ran into a lot of CDT through hikers who were, you know, almost done their journey at that point. Uh, many of them, to a to a person, kept saying the two finest sections of the CDT are Glacier and the Wind River Range, which of course is National Forest Wilderness. Sure. Uh, and so we did most of the CDT through Glacier, and you know what? I mean, I've been to Glacier several times. I've done you know the northern loop in glacier which i which is you know 65 miles and certainly one of the best trips in national parks too the cdt through glacier i really just kind of gives you the full experience i'm not even sure how many bighorn sheep we saw at least a dozen um we saw a handful of bears we saw moose you know certainly mountain goats i mean elk were bugling every morning and evening uh, and the scenery, of course, is, you know, among the best anywhere in the national park system. But Glacier certainly would be, you know, right at the top of my list. And Yosemite, I, I've been able to get to Yosemite a few times um, just in recent years. And I've hiked all over that park for 25 years. And, you know, I, not every trail yet, but I, I've kind of hit most quadrant, every quadrant of the park. And, in many of the best trails, I think. When I threw hiked the John Muir Trail a number of years ago, of course, we started in Yosemite. I've been through northern Yosemite, like in the southeast corner of the park. Those are the two biggest 
blocks of wilderness in Yosemite. And one thing that I learned, which kind of surprised me because, you know, I first hiked up Half Dome years ago. I've been up that a few times. John Muir Trail, Yosemite Valley, the Tuolumne area. Uh, I discovered that you just, you can keep hiking through Yosemite and be blown away everywhere you go. It just, you can think I've hit the best parts of Yosemite, which I did think, and then discovered other areas that are just as incredible, like the Grand Canyon of the Tuolumne River. I mean, there's a, there's a canyon that I think could justifiably be compared to Yosemite Valley, except that there are no buildings, there are no roads, there's almost no people, just other backpackers, and it's twice as long as Yosemite Valley. But these soaring granite walls, you know, that rise a couple thousand feet above you in this beautiful river canyon, waterfalls, campsites. I mean, Glacier Yosemite, right? There's a great start right there. What about Kings Canyon? I mean, isn't that the uh, undiscovered Yosemite? Yeah, I think um, Kings Canyon and Sequoia, of course, adjacent parks are like that. And they're, you know, they're, they're certainly not as visited as Yosemite. Uh, they're near population centers, so they get people. But the other beauty of the national parks is that they all have permit system. So they regulate the number of people in the backcountry. You know, you've got to you know, jump through a hoop to get a permit in these parks. And it's a little more challenging and popular ones like Yosemite, but it, it's worth the effort. And the benefit pays off when you're out there because it's just not crowded. Sequoia, um, Kings Canyon, easier to get a permit. Bigger mountains than Yosemite. You've got 13ers and 14ers down there. Deep river canyons, you know, more waterfalls than they can name. I recall taking my family oh, about five or six years ago now on a six-day trip, which was the longest at the time that my kids had done. They were still kind of young from the Mineral King area of, of uh, Sequoia. We did a loop, it's about 40 miles. And again, it's just, we, you know, we kind of had that full high Sierra experience, the, the big canyons, the big granite walls, the jagged peaks, the beautiful lakes that are just like postcards, high passes with views, you know, amazing campsites. And in Sequoia, you know, you walk through, a wilderness sequoia grove, you know, these giant trees and there are no other people around because you're, you know, you're miles into the backcountry. That That's absolutely a pretty special experience there. Yeah, it sounds like uh, an incredible promotion for the Western parks. Um, we, we shouldn't uh, shun the Eastern parks too much, though. Have you done much in uh, Shenandoah or Great Smoky? You know, I have not been to Shenandoah. I've been to Great Smokies a few times. Hiked a section of the AT. I was last there a few times on the AT there, but I was last there just three years ago in the fall, in October, because, you know, when you're in the Eastern Forest, October is the time to be there to catch the fall foliage. I, I grew up in New England and hiked there for years, and I still go back there every, uh, every summer to visit family and, and to do some hiking. The Great Smokies are really unique. I mean, they're, they're one of the most diverse, you know, ecosystems in America. I can't, you know, recall the numbers off the top of my head, but the number of tree and, and you know, flora species they have there eclipse most of the country. Yeah. And I think they say that uh, Great Smoky has more tree species than all of Europe. I think I've read that a couple of times. Yeah. I would not be surprised. It's a fascinating forest to hike through. And of course, the Appalachian Trail is well known. And it's popular and justifiably you're you're really walking up high on a, a crest of you know mountains at you know summits over six thousand feet, which are some of the highest in the east. So you get that real sense in those those classic views that everyone's seen in photos of you know ridge after blue ridge fading into the distance and foggy valleys. And so that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing about the Smokies, though, I think people don't hear about as much is that um, when you get off the AT and you're hiking on kind of either side of the crest, either the North Carolina or the Tennessee side of the park, you get in these deep side valleys, these hollers, right? And you get into that forest and it's incredibly quiet. 
you, you get this fall color if you're there at that time of year. Some of the most beautiful streams you'll ever encounter, I think. They're, they're supremely photogenic for your listeners um, who are photographers because they're just, you know, they're, they're rocky, they're steep enough that there's all these little, you know, these little pouches of white water. And uh, it's, it's beautiful. And of course, you know, there's deer and, and other wildlife in the woods there. Yeah. Shenandoah is much the same. Um, the AT, of course, runs along the ridgetops and actually is pretty darn close to the Skyline Drive. And um, a buddy and I, um, some years back, we hiked a short section on the AT and then we would jump off onto these side trails that, like you say, go down into the, the hollers and, and wind away from uh, both the vehicle traffic on the Skyline Drive as well as most of the, the foot traffic that seems to like to stick to the AT. Yeah, true. And I think Another thing that a lot of people don't realize about that that area, the southern Appalachian Mountains, is that you got some of the nicest and greatest abundances of waterfalls in the entire country. Uh, one of the things I was doing while I was there in, in Western North Carolina was a you know a, a series of day hikes to um, oh, oh I saw probably a few dozen different waterfalls. Spent a bit of time, in fact, on the Blue Ridge Parkway, which of course is one of the most popular parts of the national park system but the you know the hikes you can do there to waterfalls are are beautiful mind-blowing beautiful and all kinds of distances i mean certainly a lot of short hikes that families can take with young kids for instance absolutely and you know you mentioned waterfalls and i was i was looking uh, we reviewed a book on the traveler last fall the, the author had written about waterfalls in uh, West Virginia and Virginia and, and hit a lot of those in the um, Shenandoah area. You know, one other thing that is pretty unique, I think, to, to Great Smoky and, and Shenandoah is the fact that these places were settled long before they were national parks. And, you know, the, the homesteaders were, were moved out when the land was given over to the national parks. And so in Shenandoah and, and, and Great Smoky, I'm sure, you know, you can find these abandoned apple orchards and whatnot. You can tell where the cabins used to be by the flowers that are, the, that are coming up. Yeah, absolutely true. And the other thing you'll see, as in other parts of the East, uh, is is the remnant. If you know what you're looking for, you see the remnants of old roads that have become overgrown. And, you know, the trail follows them. The trail is narrowed to a single track, but you can tell by looking at the landscape, there was a road there. And you can imagine, you know, you know people had horse-drawn wagons they were taking up these roads to cut trees or, or hunt or whatever they were doing in there fascinating history of you know the, the federal government of course buying out landowners in the great smokies to create the national park in acadia which i'm, I'm sure you wanted to touch on a, a different history uh, and a beautiful place one of my favorite places to hike in the east and of course you know it was owned by some of the wealthiest families in America who donated their land, who had kept it immaculate and preserved this, this little patch of, of nature on, on the peninsula's main there and, and donated it to the government to create the national park. But there's some fabulous day hiking to do in Acadia. And I love getting back there. Yeah. There, there's no, there's no backpacking there though, is there? Well, no, there's no backcountry camping. So everything's so accessible that, you know, you can hit any summit. On a day hike, certainly. There's yeah. good nearby and popular in the summer, but I would tell people, you know, like a lot of parts of the East, go there in October. A little cooler, could be a bit wet, but you see some great color. Absolutely, absolutely. And and unfortunately, everybody else is discovering that and they're becoming more and more crowded. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Not much we can do about that, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, I was going to ask you what the most scenic backcountry landscape is, but, you know, I think you've pretty much described a lot of it. Although one place you haven't touched on just yet, and I know you, you've been there, is the, the Teton Crest Trail through Grand Teton. Yes. In fact, I'm happy to say that I just have uh, secured a backcountry permit to do the Teton Crest Trail again at the end of August this year. One of my favorite hikes, I, I think, you know, hands down, one of the classic national park backpacking trips in the country. It's got to be a got to be a top five. And I think that's because it it really delivers everything you want in a backpacking trip. You know, for starters, that Teton skyline is is kind of hard to hard to beat. 
that sort of, you know, when you're a little kid and you, you drew these pictures of jagged mountains, that's the Tetons. You were, you didn't know it at the time, but you were drawing Grand Teton National Park. You know, there's views from different areas that wherever you are in the park just kind of blow you away. There's, you know, the cathedral group of the Grand Teton and it's in the peaks that surround it, those deep canyons. But you also, you know, you can see all kinds of wildlife there. It has bears. Grizzlies have roamed down into the Tetons. Though I've never seen a grizzly in, in when I've backpacked in the Tetons yet. They're not quite as numerous there as, you know, in, as in Yellowstone or Glacier. But, you know, you see black bears. I've seen moose there on multiple occasions. Elk outside, the, you know, my tent flaps at night. Some of the best backcountry campsites I've ever had. And, you know, you can. You can backpack the Teton Crest Trail various ways, but under 40 miles and a very doable trip for a lot of people. Yeah, I was going to ask, it's, I guess, a three or four day trip. Are there other um, backpack treks that fall into that short time period? It seems that Americans, we work too hard and we don't leave enough time for play. And uh, I was reading a story um, last fall that uh, some folks are opting more and more for the the three and four day vacations, I guess, um, every few months, as opposed to the, the two week summer vacation. So are there some nice uh, three or four day backpack treks in the national parks? Absolutely. And in um, many too, because, you know, as you know, Kurt, um, the national parks have a couple of goals when the park system is created. One obviously is to preserve the natural environment. Another is to create recreation opportunities for people. So you know, there are there are elaborate trail systems through many of these parks. Some I've mentioned, like already, like Yosemite, you can do, if you hit the core, what I've often referred to in my blog is the, the core of Yosemite is the area between Yosemite Valley and Tuolumne Meadows. And I call it the core because it's really the most accessible part of the park in terms of trailhead access. And you can do 30 to 40 mile hikes right there that include Half Dome, that include a part of the John Muir Trail, Tuolumne Meadows, um, the Sunrise Lakes area, really pretty terrain. Some of the best waterfalls in the park, like on the Mist Trail, Mist, that is, in, in under 40 miles. Glacier, certainly, there are loops you could do that are under 40 miles. I described that one as Sequoia from Mineral King that's 40 miles. Um, there are shorter ones in Grand Teton. The most popular in the park is probably the Paintbrush Canyon, Cascade Canyon Loop, which is just 19 miles, was one of our kids' first backpacking trips when they were just eight and six, because we could do it in two nights. It was doable for young kids, and it's a you know it's a beautiful hike. My gosh, I, I guess I could go on. You can do you know a section of the Wonderland Trail or the Northern Loop in Mount Rainier National Park in three or four days, certainly. The Olympics have opportunities like the Ho Valley. You could hike up and back out and see one of the most, you know, vibrant and, and productive old growth rainforests in the country on a flat hike of as much distance as you want. And and even places like Grand Canyon, the corridor trails, you can do, you know, seven miles down the South Kaibab Trail to the Colorado River and come back up nine and a half miles on the Bright Angel Trail. You know, under 17 miles, you can do that in two or three days. Yeah. You mentioned waterfalls. And uh, one, of the, one of the favorite hikes I have in, in Yellowstone is the uh, down in Cascade Corner, the, the Beckler River Trail. Um, yeah. We've hiked it from uh, Old Faithful um, down to the, the bottom of the park there. And boy, there are more waterfalls there that I know what to do with. That's a great trip. And um, I, I want to do it in the summertime. I've actually skied it in the winter, um, wow. which is quite an adventure. And, um, but you're right. I mean, that's a great trip. There's the Mr. Bubble Hot Springs, which is, you know, basically a creek that's fed by thermal water. So it's, it's legal and safe and really nice place to soak in Beckler Canyon. And I think that trip, the, the traverse is like 32 miles, but there are, there are other waterfalls you can do on side hikes off of that. So sure. that's a moderate distance trip there. Now you, you've touched on from time to time in our conversation here. As parks get more and more crowded, some of these hikes are becoming more and more difficult to do because of the need to land a permit. Are there any secrets you can share in that regard, Michael, or is it simply just being aware of when the permitting window opens? 
Yes and yes. Um, <laughs> in fact, I, I have a I have a story at the Big Outside called uh, 10 Tips for Getting a Hard to Get National Park Backcountry Permit," which I go into depth. But you know, the first thing is absolutely know when you have to apply. I mean, if you want to backpack the John Muir Trail, backpack in the core of Yosemite, backpack the Teton Crest Trail, the Wonderland Trail, the corridor trails in Grand Canyon, some of the most popular corners of Glacier, Great Smokies, on and on. You really need to know, you need to go to the website months in advance. This is the time of year, good time to be talking about this. This is the time of year where you go to those websites, you think about the dates you want to get, and you find out when to apply. And I can tell you that, well, because of the the government shutdown, Grand Teton did not end up accepting permit applications until it reopened. So it was a few weeks ago, it was in the middle of February sometime when I got that permit. I intend to apply on March 15th for a Wonderland Trail permit at Mount Rainier because that's where they start, start accepting them. Glacier is also March 15th. Grand Canyon is four months in advance of when you want to go. So you might be looking at that December 1st or you know, sometime May or June, depending on whether you want to go spring or fall. The other thing is to look really closely at how the particular park manages their permit system. And so you got to spend a little time at the website because they all, the parks all generally do it differently. Um, many of them are now going to an online reservation system, which I think is good uh, because, you know, most people travel a distance and want to have the security of a reservation in advance, not to just show up and hope to get lucky. But look at the system. Yosemite, for instance, has a trailhead quota, and then you can camp for the, for the day you start. You start from a particular trailhead. They allow a certain number of people to start every day at each trailhead. And other, and then you can camp wherever you want each night. But others, you know, like Glacier, they'll designate where you're going to camp each night. Most of those parks that have an online reservation system allow you the option of applying for, this is the best trick anyone can use, applying for either flexible dates, a flexible itinerary, or different starting trailheads. So in other words, what it comes down to is the more flexibility you can build into your permit application, you vastly increase your odds of getting a permit. You know, if you're if you are rigid with one or two possible starting dates, it's a really tough permit to get. If you're going to uh, um, allow for you know a range of a week of starting dates that you can apply for, and some flexibility in your itinerary or your starting trailhead. You're probably going to get a permit, especially if you submitted that application the first day that they open it up. Yeah, that's good to know. You know, Michael, we could go on for a long time. I'm sure there's a lot of other questions I want to ask you, but I'm afraid our time is up today. Our guest has been Michael Lanza. He's the uh, the blogster, I guess, of the Big Outside, where uh, you can learn all about his adventures and uh, the best gear that you can use on those trails. He's also the author of Before They're Gone, a family's year-long quest to explore America's most endangered national parks. Michael, thank you so much for your time today. We'll have to catch up down the road. Absolutely, Kurt. Thanks for having me on, and I love what you're doing with this podcast and with The Traveler. National parks are here for all of us. A truly American idea dependent on the support of people like you. The National Park Foundation works in the parks you love to protect them for the next generation. Through the Foundation's programs, trails in the National Park System are maintained, ocean resources and their marine life are protected, and philanthropic dollars are raised to help support park managers make ends meet. See how you can support the National Parks by visiting nationalparks.org.
Defenders of Wildlife is calling 2019 the year of coexistence and as such has identified each month with a particular wildlife species. For March, that species is the Florida panther. Now, North American cougars once had the broadest distribution of any terrestrial mammal in the Western Hemisphere. Today, however, the only population east of the Mississippi, the Florida panther, is confined to a small fragment of its former range in southwest Florida. Many of the cats claim habitat in Big Cypress National Preserve and Everglades National Park. Unfortunately, in some years, new litters of Florida panthers seemingly are offset by deaths, most caused by vehicles. Through February 22nd of this year, five panthers were killed. At least three of those deaths were by vehicles. But not all is bleak, however. Today, we're talking with Elizabeth Fleming, senior Florida representative for Defenders of Wildlife, who works closely on issues involving black bears, manatees, sea turtles, and, of course, the Florida panther. Defenders of Wildlife, by the way, is the conservation representative on the Florida panther recovery team. Thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. Thank you for talking with me. Now, as I understand it, um, we, we are seeing deaths of panthers out there because of vehicle collisions and whatnot, but, but things aren't as, as bleak as they might seem. Is that true? Well, it's the Florida panther is a is a very endangered animal, but we have to remember there have been tremendous strides in the last few decades. I mean, in the 1970s, we didn't even know if there were Florida panthers left. And then surveys began in the early 80s and they they found that there were a few and that they were very inbred. And then there was In 1995, there was the genetic restoration program that brought in some Texas panthers, Texas puma. They're all the same species to reinvigorate the gene pool. And since then, there has been a a steady increase. And so we think there may have been a low of 12 to 20 individuals back then. And now the estimate is. 120 to 230 adult panthers in South Florida. So it's a, still a small number, but it's a, it's a tremendous increase. Now that genetic rescue, if you will, was that a one-time only um, situation that, that solved the inbreeding problems or is this something that will have to be done from time to time? I think originally it was envisioned to be done from time to time. They've not done it since. And it was highly successful the first time. If the population can continue to increase and if they can get further north from where they are now, um, they might run into other um, puma from other parts of the country, which is what they used to do back before they were so isolated more than 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. It may have to happen again, but... As far as I understand, biologists who document this very closely still believe that genetically, those very deleterious impacts that we had been observing, they had cardiac problems, they had reproductive issues, kittens weren't surviving. I mean, the population is much more fit than it used to be. And so it may have to happen again, but as far as I know, there aren't... uh, plans to do so. Are there other cougar mountain lion populations to the north of the the Florida panther? Yes, the Florida panther subspecies, we believe, used to range from Florida, where it is now, through eight southeastern states, over to Arkansas and as far north as North Carolina. So those Texas animals used to breed with the Florida animals, and there used to be a subspecies, we believe, that the eastern puma, the Fish and Wildlife Service has declared that as extinct. The animals coming from the west, puma, cougar, mountain lion, are coming further east. And there are animals from Canada coming further south. So eventually, they could all meet up again and breed as they used to. There is some debate and discussion going on now about the validity of these different subspecies categories. 
it's widely recognized that they're all the same species, but there is some discussion about in North America how they may in fact all be very similar genetically. As you mentioned, um, once upon a time, there was only thought to be maybe two dozen panthers left, and they've, uh, Florida panthers, that is, and they've, they've certainly reproduced, and um, they're, they're moving north, right? They're moving out of uh, Big Cypress and out of Everglades National Park and, and heading north. Yes. Panthers, cougars, mountain lions, they all have huge territorial requirements, and in South Florida, south of the Caloosahatchee River, where the reproductive population is, it's thought to be filling most of the areas that are suitable habitat. So they need to push northward across the Caloosahatchee River into central Florida and beyond. And in the last couple of years, we've had some very hopeful signs. We know of at least two female panthers who've actually swum across the Caloosahatchee River, and one of those has had two litters of kittens north of the river. And that had not happened in more than 40 years. And so this is a a milestone in panther recovery. We need many more of them to do this. But the fact that they did it on their own, unassisted by humans, is, is a great testament to the fact that they may be able to uh, rebuild a population north of the river. Now, now back in, I believe it was the 1990s, there was an effort launched in, in the Rocky Mountains called the uh, Yellowstone to Yukon, the Y2Y initiative to try and open up a wildlife corridor linking uh, the Yukon to the Yellowstone National Park to enable wildlife uh, species to roam back and forth and exchange their genes, whatnot. And we're, we seem to be seeing uh, more efforts like that across the country. I know um, the Traveler reported like late last year on a, a similar effort on the eastern seaboard there to um, identify open spaces, green spaces, if you will, that wildlife could use to uh, traverse as they move up and down the, the seaboard. Are we seeing, are there enough open lands out there that can be knit together to create this type of corridor for the Florida panther? There are. And in Florida, there's been a lot of this kind of mapping going on for decades. Florida is actually ahead of many other states in the country in terms of its GIS analysis and looking at lands and connectivity, exactly the same kind of thing. And we have what's called the Florida Ecological Greenways Network. Tom Hochter and some others had mapped this out quite a while ago. And Others go back and, and do some refinements as, as things change over time. And we had the largest land acquisition program in the entire country for several decades called the Florida Forever Program, which during the recession and under our previous governor, the money was scaled way back. And we're hoping to revive that. But if there's enough funding available, these areas are identified. We have the science and we have the information that we need. And it's almost a race against time because not only does Florida have some of the most ecologically sensitive areas in the country, tremendous biological diversity, we're also one of the fastest developing states in the country. We surpassed New York State a couple of years ago as the third most populous state in the entire country. Wow. With that goes tremendous building of new homes and subdivisions and even towns and cities with the road network to support all of that. Now, mountain lions are not your house kittens. They're not your house cats. They're big predators, sharp teeth, sharp claws. There was just a story out of Colorado uh, the past week or two about a, a runner was out running and uh, a cougar actually attacked him, thought he was prey. And uh, fortunately, the, the young man was able to kill the panther before it killed him. In Wyoming right now, there's uh, lots of concerns over grizzly bears and whether the state should uh, be allowed to have a grizzly bear hunt with uh, grizzlies coming out of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Getting back to the year of coexistence, is there do you sense uh, a willingness of people in Florida to coexist with Florida panthers? I do. And let me preface this by saying the Florida panther is our state animal. And there is great support 
for maintaining some part of wild Florida so that, you know, panthers and bears and, and other wildlife can continue to live on into the future. At the same time, there are many new people moving to Florida. They are, some of them, somewhat surprised to learn. You know, they know we have beaches and pelicans and dolphins and and animals like that. Some are surprised to know that inland areas of Florida is, is very agricultural. There's a lot of ranching, and it's a very important state. Florida is for ranching cattle, you know, among the country. So as these areas become more developed, we're seeing greater conflicts and even areas where ranchers have been for decades and sportsmen have recreated for decades. We're seeing more potential conflict situations with panthers simply because I believe there are more panthers than there used to be and there are more people than there used to be. And so they're encountering one another. Fortunately, we have not had a documented attack on a person from a panther in more than 100 years. That's not to say that that couldn't happen at any time. Panthers naturally try to avoid close encounters with people. That incident you mentioned in Colorado, my understanding is that was a a very young animal, maybe 40 to 60 pounds. And it was probably an orphan. And it, it was on survival mode. They found, you know, vegetable matter, grasses and leaves and stuff in its stomach. A panther cougar mountain lion is a, is a carnivore. They eat meat, primarily deer. So that poor animal was acting in survival mode. And it's a, it's a shame that the jogger happened to be there and everything that happened. Naturally, if if these animals have a sufficient food supply, that shouldn't be an issue. But of course, you mentioned they're not house cats or anything like that. But the similarities, if you throw a ball or if you see something moving quickly, a cat responds that that can trigger their instinct to chase. And so somebody jogging or riding a mountain bike in a wilderness area could encounter wildlife, and that movement could incite a chase. There are people in Florida, uh, the children in 1982 voted to have the animal as our state animal. And when you mentioned March is important for our state because the third Saturday is designated as Save the Florida Panther Day. It's in statute and and designated by the Florida legislature. And each year, usually the governor issues a proclamation so that the people can celebrate that day. That said, these are wild animals and don't want to minimize the potential for a conflict or a, a serious encounter. And we do offer a lot of information to people about how to keep themselves, their pets, and livestock safe from panthers and other predators. We have a program where we help cost share and construct predator-resistant enclosures in the neighborhoods down near the Florida Panther National Wildlife Refuge, Golden Gate Estates, where two of those panthers have been run over recently. It's a brawling suburban area where unfortunately we couldn't build wildlife crossings there, but there are many conflicts with wild animals and domestic animals. And these enclosures that we help people purchase and construct for animals such as goats or sheep, chickens, even pet dogs and cats are extremely effective at keeping those animals safe. And so that's been an important program for us. We also participate in festivals and homeowner association meetings and other opportunities to get the word out about what people can do to uh, live responsibly when they are right on the edge of panther habitat. And so learning how to behave properly. I mean, if a panther, if you should encounter a panther, fight back, put your arms up, act big, yell at it, 
I mean, they don't, they, they are a ambush predator. They don't want to engage in a struggle. And that has worked. And including for others out West where they have had issues such as that. You know, Elizabeth, um, in terms of getting the Panthers more habitat and to move north in Florida and possibly into to Georgia, as you mentioned, there's a need for um, large open spaces. And I imagine some of those open spaces will possibly involve uh, private property, some of the big ranches up there. And is there an acceptance out there for, for the Panthers to move through? Well, yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, Panthers are such wide-ranging animals that they absolutely need the private lands in addition to the public lands where they are. And in general, we have found that private landowners, the ranching in particular, the lands are managed in such a way to help support panthers and their prey. So they end up with panthers on their land and there has been some conflict with panthers preying upon calves in the ranching operations. So that has caused some frustration. But what we have found is that if programs are working and these losses aren't going to cause the landowners a, a lot of economic loss, that they generally support having panthers on their land. So the, the question becomes how do we improve? incentive programs that work for landowners and for panthers. Um, There are a couple of federal programs, one that directly compensates for loss for panthers and other federally protected species. And then there's another one that pays landowners to basically do the kind of good stewardship and management of their lands that are a reason why there are deer and panthers on their land to begin with, to continue those practices. If they maintain their land in ways that benefit panthers and prey and allow for panthers to breed and seek cover, those are ecosystem benefits. But both of those programs administered by the U.S. Department of Agriculture have shortcomings. They lack the proper funding. And so there is some frustration on the part of landowners, but private landowners north of where the public lands are that we talked about, Big Cypress and the Florida Panther Refuge and Everglades and everything, are absolutely essential for panthers moving northward. So we, it's a priority of ours to work, and the, the federal panther recovery team has made this one of the greatest priorities is to try and improve these programs so that landowners accept panthers being on their land and and will tolerate some of the losses that will be incurred to their calves and and other livestock. We've been talking today with Elizabeth Fleming. She is a senior Florida representative for Defenders of Wildlife who works closely on a, a range of wildlife issues, including the Florida panther. Elizabeth, thank you for giving us this update on the panther, and we'll be watching and and check with you down the road to see how the recovery is going. Okay, thank you. You hear them before you see them. The roar, the whoosh, the crash. And when you see them, you just stand and marvel. They are the waterfalls of Yosemite National Park, and they leap from some of the most magnificent granite cliffs in the world. Rock monuments called El Capitan, Half Dome, and Glacier Point. But you don't need to stay in a crowded lodge during your Yosemite vacation. Yosemite's Scenic Wonders Vacation Rentals is the choice for people who want a great value for their Yosemite accommodations. Scenic Wonders offers beautiful homes located away from the more congested tourist spots to keep your stay feeling uninterrupted and memorable. Visit them at scenicwonders.com.
Our plan was really quite simple. We would trek down the Appalachian National Scenic Trail with the usual intent. We wanted to see trees and wildflowers, to hike down leafy trails, cross a stream when necessary, and hopefully spy some birds and deer, and, if we were truly fortunate, maybe a wild turkey or two. Dropping into the Big Run Wilderness from Shenandoah National Park's Skyline Drive, we had few expectations. All we really wanted was some solitary travel, a few days of quiet time to catch up on those things that can slip through the cracks of distance when you live 1,500 miles apart. Boy, were we in for a surprise. While we joined the Appalachian Trail at Smith Roach Gap in Shenandoah, we soon abandoned it at the park's Ivy Creek Overlook, crossing Skyline Drive to the west and venturing down the Brown Mountain Trail with an intent to return to the AT in a day or two. A trail barely half the width of the AT due to substantially fewer hikers, the Brown Mountain Trail is also decidedly more rugged, taking you up onto a mountaintop with a sedimentary underpinning, one near the summit's crest, surfaces in quartzite cliffs and rubble. From this summit, we were then sent steeply back down to the floor of the park, to where Big Run flows serenely out of Shenandoah and on towards the river of the same name. Heavy rains in the weeks preceding our trip had tamped down whatever dust there might have been and gorged the mosses along the trail with moisture. Between the reds, golds, oranges, and yellows of the leaves and the mosses' kaleidoscopic greens, everything from gray greens and surf greens to lime greens, all the way up to hunter greens, the trails were in full holiday dress. Not long after bedding down that night near the junction of Big Portal Run and Rocky Mountain Run, we were entertained not only by a clear, star-studded sky, but by an owl, perhaps a great horned owl, we thought, that seemed determined to convince some other raptor that this was his or her territory and not theirs. After a series of hoots and squawks and screeches, the silence of the night swept the forest. What makes this experience particularly rewarding is that the Big Run Wilderness is a component of Shenandoah's nearly 80,000 acres of officially designated wilderness. Yes, this rugged patch of rocks, dirt, trees, and streams on the park's southwestern flanks, one that is less than three hours from the political hotbed of Washington, D.C., and which is surrounded by 30 million or more people within a half-day's drive, is officially managed as wilderness, a small island of wild in the midst of urban sprawl. While we heard the calls of northern flickers and owls and saw deer and trout in the backcountry of Shenandoah, we also heard planes, trains, and automobiles from our toehold in the Big Run wilderness and could even spy towns and highways from the roof of Brown Mountain. And yet, Big Run was about to produce something neither of us had ever encountered. After that night near the junction of Big Portal Run and Rocky Mountain Run, We headed slowly up out of the basin, climbing ever upward along the Big Portal Trail over a bed of freshly minted fall leaves. There were the bright greens of the black gum trees, gold-hued hickory leaves, orangish sugar maple leaves, and yellow tulip poplar leaves. And rising above this colorful path were asters in full bloom. Hugging the trail were mosses and ferns, and salted into this duff were millions of acorns. Rich mahogany in color, nutritious gold for squirrels and bears alike. The trail cuts a relatively broad swath through the forest here, and parallels, and even hopscotches, big run for a good way. From time to time, it allows side-by-side hiking, perfect for conversing while enjoying during the warm October morning. We were barely 15 minutes from our camp when my buddy Bob shouted, Bear! But this Bruin wasn't loping along or foraging amid rotten logs or the waning vegetation on the forest floor, where I had immediately looked for him. No, it had possibly spent the early morning, or perhaps the entire night, in a crook in a tree some 20 to 25 feet off the ground, when he either saw us or heard us coming. Desperate to be gone, this bear began to scoot down the tree. Unfortunately for him, his grip was either too weak or his flight instinct too heady, and he wound up plunging the final 8 to 10 feet to the ground. And yes, bears do bounce. While I can't promise you'll see falling bears on your own fall sojourn into Shenandoah, the odds are good the season's colors will be on display. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll be taking a look at the battle with lionfish in the waters of Biscayne National Park. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck, 
See you in the parks. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles off the Florida Keys, just very well might be the most difficult park to reach in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, scuba diving, fishing, and kayaking. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.